welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us today we have Dr Peter Aitken. Peter was originally from Argyllshire and is now a consultant psychiatrist at the Devon Partnership NHS Trust and Director of Research and Innovation for them. He's previously been the Chair of the Faculty of Liaison Psychiatry at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He's got an Honorary Associate Professorship at Exeter Uni and is the Medical Chair for the RNLI and Advisor to a crew down in Exmouth. And he's the Executive Lead for Suicide Prevention in Devon. And he's coming to talk to us today about dealing with folks who are despondent and, and dealing with potential mental health cases. Peter, thanks so much for agreeing to come on and chat to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So, yes, it's a strange thing, really, to be coming on to talk about some of the work, which essentially come, comes from my hobby, which is being as a volunteer for the RNLI, going afloat, but also working in the background, trying to think a bit about how do we help essentially lay volunteers know how to manage vulnerable people who are behaving in a difficult or strange way to them and knowing what they might do by way of making the situation safe for them, the boat, and the person they're seeking to rescue. My background is as a young man growing up in the west of Scotland. I was fond of boats and boating, trained in medicine in Glasgow, and initially had a bit of a career in what was then casualty and A&E medicine before becoming a GP, and then eventually realizing that most of the excitement in medicine lay in understanding people. So I became a psychiatrist, and the kind of psychiatry I enjoy is the psychiatry of people who are in general hospital systems or A&E departments. In other words, trying to help physicians, surgeons, nurses, and others get their job done whilst managing the behavioral peculiarity of the people that they're dealing with. And it's very much from that perspective that I'm speaking to you today, because most people, when they encounter strangeness, worry that they don't know very much about mental disorder or mental health diagnosis or mental illness diagnosis more correctly. I always felt that probably didn't matter very much in the first responder space. I began to work with crew and ask them what was it like for them when they met people whom they found it difficult to help. And eventually it boiled down to four things, three of which I think matter and one of which needs to be put to one side perhaps. So the issue that I'll put to one side is this notion of disordered personality or personality disorder which is in general conversation. But what really matters, certainly to lifeboat crew, and I suspect to ambulance crew as well, because we've, we've done some work on this with London Ambulance, is what do you do when you meet somebody who has what I call counterintuitive behavior? So for the most part, when we're poorly, we know that we're poorly and we go to a health professional and we seek help or advice. In general, we're meant to be grateful for that and we're meant to be thoughtful about the person who's helping us. We need to try and do what they're asking of us and we work with them in order to try and get better. What we're talking about today though is when that ordinary contract of behavior has broken down and that the person that we're meeting behaves in a way that is violent and aggressive or they refuse treatment and they want to run away or even more obviously they are self-harming or they are in a position where we think they might be at risk of taking their own life. So we formed work around these three behaviours uh, and we began to ask the question, what do we need to know about violence and aggression? 
and does it really matter what the underlying cause is? Because it's the behavior that we have to manage. We have to keep ourselves safe and we have to keep the person who's being violent and aggressive towards us safe. And we've still got to get the job done. In lifeboat terms, we don't think about mental illness primarily. We think about illness, injury and immersion. And we would know from our data that actually it's more common for people to be behaving in a violent and aggressive way because they either have some pre-existing medical condition uh, or they've sustained a head injury or a significant injury of some description or they've been immersed in water or they're cold. So we've managed to get behind the the awkwardness of the presentation and think a bit about what underlying cause might be in the more traditional sense. And then we just have to learn how to work with people who are difficult in a way that keeps us safe. And similarly, for people who are refusing treatment and running away from help, again, let's not assume or presume that this is a mental health disorder that scares us, like perhaps schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or more commonly drug-induced psychosis. Let's think about this as something that might be as a result of illness, injury or immersion uh, and then work from there. What do we need to do differently because this person isn't asking us for help and this person isn't coming to us voluntarily and saying, please help me. This person is leaving the scene or moving away. By the time we've looked through those two scenarios, then the, the actual specifics of the person who's harming themselves or the person who is in a risky situation or a risky position and might come to harm if there wasn't an intervention it becomes that little bit easier because by now we're not worrying what the underlying mental condition might be that's driven them to this uh, set of behaviors what we are thinking about are what are we going to do about it so how do we operate differently well i think the first thing is not to put yourself in harm's way because if you as a paramedic or a, a doctor or a, a lay member of, of any community of interest put yourselves in harm's way, then we end up with more casualties than we started with, and that's not good. So the same principle is make yourself safe, use your phone to call many others to the situation, and use the power of numbers and also the protection of people who are skilled in managing uh, violent and aggressive incidents. So the police are extremely helpful with that. Um, if you're in a mental health unit, you have the benefit of a control and restraint team. If you're beside the sea, you don't. So you do what you can. And then the second thing is, of course, there is a duty of care. So you can't walk away from these situations or allow people to run off just because they're refusing to be treated by you and they're running away. There is a duty of care that suggests that you then ought to put some help behind them. So can you follow at a safe distance? Can you call other agencies because somebody's about to walk into their jurisdiction? What search and rescue assets have you got that might keep a line of sight on the person or find the person who's run away from you? And at some time, presumably, their illness, their injury, their immersion, or even their underlying mental disorder uh, will settle to a point whereby sufficient people have been gathered in the right place to manage the, the behavior and bring them to safety. And the safety thing is interesting because, again, often people are at their most anxious trying to help difficult behavior because they haven't had an opportunity to think through where does all of this end up? Where are we going to get to at the end of this intervention? So leaving those three behaviours to one side, if I now come to some of the work that I've been involved in with other lay communities, I've been puzzling over the rarity of suicide as an event and the fact that rare events spread across millions of people are extremely hard to predict and extremely hard to plan for. 
So if you take the example of a community of a million people, which is around the number of people who live in Devonshire, we maybe see two or three hundred cases of what might be regarded as suicide in a calendar year. And certainly we know that some groups and some individuals are more at risk than others. But the reality is these deaths are like needles in a haystack. And while some of the haystacks might have one or two more needles in them than the other, by and large, these deaths crop up despite the best efforts of a few thousand health workers to be in the right place at the right time. So the only way we can really get a handle on prevention now is to have a million people in Devon all equipped with the right skills to recognise vulnerability, ask the right questions, listen in a way that's non-prejudicial and allows people to feel okay about coming for help, but most importantly, knowing what to do. So we need to equip a million people with the knowledge of knowing what to do so that if they find themselves recognising vulnerability, asking the right questions and listening in a kind way, they're not worrying that they don't know the exit strategy. So exit strategy is extremely important. And in any one patch, I guess, it is important for the professional paramedic or the professional doctor to know where the safe place is going to be. In England, we call it a place of safety. And we're thought whether that's the mental health unit or police custody or any departments. In general, we take a view depending on how much blood there is on the person if they need to go to A&E first or how well known they are to the criminal justice system if they need to go to custody first or maybe they're known to mental health services in which they will come to the mental health place of safety. But generally speaking, it can be a tricky choice for ambulance crews, for anybody meeting folk in this situation, simply because if you go to a sort of high street situation on a Friday night and you meet somebody who's odd in their behavior, odd in their mental state, with a big cut in their head and a card in their pocket that says they're diabetic, it can be quite tricky to know whether custody, the mental health suite, or A&E is the right place to go. And invariably, I think most of us feel A&E is probably the best place to start, given that it has the kit and the equipment to make the right level of assessment. Of course, A&E departments don't do so well without the presence of police and security. So making sure that those things are carefully protocolized and in place, pretty essential. And then we get into detail around power of conveyance and moving people on to the right setting of care once the physical elements have been worked through. So this can all get a bit complicated down the line, but I think the most difficult bit really is the engagement piece. This first piece that I've talked about, which is you're faced with a violent and aggressive situation, you're trying to care for somebody who doesn't want care and wants to leave the scene, or you're aware that they are putting themselves in harm's way by self-harm or they're vulnerable to accidental or suicidal death and you want to do something. Having recognized those situations, you need to make yourself safe and bring as many people as possible to the situation. You need to be able to monitor where that person is going off to and use search and rescue assets to follow them um, or phone jurisdictions that they're going into and make sure that they are picked up and then eventually assume that the illness, immersion, injury or mental disorder that's underlying the thing will lead to them settling in some way. One of the examples that we work through on lifeboats, which can sometimes help people see the difficulty of these situations, is we were faced with a family who were on a yacht. They were sleeping happily on their yacht in one of our bays, and a chap who had taken an interesting cocktail of psychoactive substances had obviously felt it was important that he steal a dory powerboat and head out into the bay to throw firebombs at the family in, in the yacht. 
which was terrifying because it set the yacht on fire. We were called out as lifeboat crew, and as we headed over to the scene, it became the question, what are we going to do when we get there? What's our exit strategy? What might this lead to? And eventually, what it led to was the chap jumping into the water and becoming hypothermic and cold and then unconscious. So we went to the principles of we need to keep the boat afloat and to operate the boat we need a crew. So our patient will come third. We can't have somebody throwing petrol bombs around on a lifeboat. That won't work. But at the same time, we can't leave them in the sea. We have a duty of care. And so our duty of care was simply to put a rope round him and bring him back onto the aft deck. And the plan was that if he woke up and was behaving in a way that was putting the boat and the crew at risk, he would simply go back over the side until hypothermia had cooled him down again. And we would then bring him back on board and we would use the unconscious patient card from our big sick, little sick card system. Now that can sound harsh, but working through scenarios like that in advance can be extremely helpful to first responder agencies working in remote rural areas, different conditions of sea, just to know that you know what might seem right in an A&E department or on land might be quite different in a search and rescue environment. So if I were to leave you with a few tips, I think the most important thing is the exit strategy. So knowing what you will do is probably pretty critical to the other three things. And the other three things are, can you skill up to recognize a vulnerable person? If you can get alongside the vulnerable person, can you ask the right questions to identify what the issue is? And that can be as blunt as asking, are you thinking about putting yourself in harm's way? Have you given thought to ending your own life? Are you suicidal? These questions don't precipitate the act. What they do is they protect by allowing the person to then tell you something about their story. So listening well is an art. Try not to jump in and solve the problem. Do your best to listen until they've had a chance to explain themselves and what they're up to. And then because you know what to do, you can then take the right action to help that person get to a place of safety that you've previously identified. And then you can move them from the place of safety on to definitive care, whether that's medical care or mental health care, you know what to do in advance. It's a lovely approach because it takes away all of the, the stigma about dealing with it as a mental health problem and just sort of accepts that there may be aspects of it that are to do with mental health. But actually, if we treat everybody as though they are injured or unwell, then it's more familiar territory, I guess, for us as medical respondents. I think even when it is known that there is an underlying mental health condition, the risk is diagnostic overshadowing and that everybody will work as if this is a relapse in schizophrenia or that this is a drug-induced psychosis. But I've had sufficient unfortunate case experience over the years. I can think of an example of finding a black man significantly anemic because he had HIV in a psychiatric intensive care unit because he presented with disordered thinking and an assumption had been made that it was a psychotic mental disorder. He was in the wrong setting of care. And when he went to the infectious diseases unit and was treated, did extremely well. I've encountered a barrister dying in an ambulance outside a psychiatric intensive care unit because again he presented with what on the face of it seemed to be a psychotic mental state but in fact it was an effect of a prescribed medication interaction and overdose that led to his death. So around the coast it's pretty obvious that the vast majority of encounters that we have with people who are in the sea 
they're in the sea because they're recreational sailors or they've fallen off a boat or they're commercial fishermen. Very few people are in the sea because they have deliberately put themselves in harm's way. So on the balance of probability, we should really work from the perspective that this is injury, illness or immersion. And only when we've worked through our protocols to make sure that those things have been taken into consideration should we worry about whether they have an underlying diagnosis of schizophrenia or recurrent depressive disorder or OCD or all the other things that people read about and get slightly nervous about. I don't know whether it's commonplace for everybody, but we have quite an elderly community in the West Country. So we can be faced with fairly elderly, vulnerable people who enjoy the coastal path or have a sudden memory of the coastal path and a favoured dog walk and who go missing from residential care settings or nursing homes. And search and rescue assets will be mobilised to find them. Uh, I can think of an occasion where we rescued a gentleman of 75 from a small tree growing out of a cliff face. His, his dog hadn't made it, but he had. He was cognitively impaired, but he was cognitively impaired because he'd become unwell with a urinary tract infection. And that was the underlying cause. So I think at every way through my work on the coast with the first responder services, the safer assumption is that this is not primarily caused by mental disorder or even dementia. We should assume that there's an underlying medical or surgical cause until proven otherwise and make sure that we use the right care pathways to, to sort that out. And that is an interesting point because the diagnostic overshadowing also comes into play when you've got the frequent flyers, for want of a better term, who are you know, well known. But looking back at cases from the past, they actually are probably almost at more risk of having physical issues in addition to their ongoing mental health or perhaps personality type disorders. Yes, I mean, the, the high utilisers thwart us all with the persistence of their experience. And the, the difficulty there is that whilst for a psychiatrist, mm. it's easy to understand that often this is the only way that they can engage in any kind of meaningful human relationship which you know, would be at odds with the rest of us. Nevertheless, these encounters that these folk have with police and rescue services, with hospital staff, they are probably the only meaningful relationships that they have that keep them going. So we have to manage that fairly carefully as a specialist mental health service so to make sure that we don't remove the one set of experiences that a person is having that is keeping them alive whilst we work with them to try and build them back to mission work life. The prognosis for people with these kind of disorders is actually remarkably good, but it happens, the remarkable goodness comes over a five to 10 year frame. So if you happen to be in a particular ambulance station or A&E department for a period of two or three years, you may not see the, the fact that these people can have good outcome. And, and the other thing is, you're absolutely right, they have very poor general health because they don't use the health service in a way that the health service is set up. So their abnormal behavior becomes abnormal illness behavior. And you're right, diagnostic overshadowing would suggest, ah, we've seen them a lot. They won't come to any harm. We'll give them a quick look over and send them on their way. And that avoids them becoming dependent or, you know, malignantly involved in, in our unit of care when we've got other things to be getting on with. But the reality is the Oxford series conducted separately over 20 years confirmed that people who repeatedly self-harm or present to A&E departments with repeated self-harm are exponentially more at risk of completing suicide than the general population. They have very bad suicide health outcomes, and that is preventable. They are a group of people who are declaring themselves to services. They, they are not missing needles in our haystack. They are people we know about. And so it's very important that mental health services are able to work well with folk like that and also support the general hospital so that the general hospital or the ambulance service are not 
left with the heavy lifting around those folk. So locally, what we have are high utilizer registers. We, we try to make sure that we all know who these folk are. The ambulance service will have a list of people that they are experiencing high volumes of calls from. A&E data will have the same thing. Often there are people who are well known to mental health services and criminal justice or police. So we put those data sets together, identify the highest users of our services, and then we try to put a high utilizer plan against each of them. And we meet, uh, we have interagency meetings to sit and, and think through whether we're making the difference. And sometimes there is a political or an economic imperative. It's not uncommon for people to take advantage of motorway bridges or railway bridges to declare their distress. And of course that can close motorways and close railway lines, which really concentrates everybody's thinking on how best to resource solutions for people who present in that way. Uh, so strategic groups need to think about these things and think about these individuals. They cannot just be left to the unfortunate ambulance paramedic or A&E staff that are trying to deal with them in the moment. It's very important that they are understood, known about, and that plans are put in place as a system to try and lessen the impact on them and lessen their impact on the place that they live. Absolutely. And it, it's trying to get all the cogs working in the same direction and at the same time for the right patient in order to generate a good outcome. I think because the nature of these behaviours is irritating to health and social care professionals and to the general population, it's important to understand the irritation. And the irritation comes from the break in the ordinary social contract. We expect to be appreciated when we offer care to other people. We, we don't expect to be received with violence, aggression or no thank you. We expect to be appreciated. So we tend to become irritated and upset and slightly angry with folk who use healthcare in this way or who present for help in this way. And so there's a considerable amount of work to be done by people who've got some expertise in mental health practice to talk to other health staff, other care staff and explain this, and then just talk about the need to remain relentlessly reasonable and unerringly kind in our interaction with these folk. And the reason for that is that they're often in this space because they've never experienced people being relentlessly reasonable with them. And often they have not experienced people being unerringly kind to them. They often come from very traumatic circumstances over a very large number of years. And so their whole experience of life is one of abuse, difficulty, psychological trauma, call it what you will, inconsistency, and when they bring all of their versions of those inconsistencies to A&E or to, to an ambulance crew, it can lead to difficulty if we don't equip our health and social care professionals with the, an understanding of what they're dealing with. Just a commitment to be relentlessly reasonable and kind, even if we all have to let off steam in the pub later about just how irritating we actually found it. It's important that that isn't shown to the casualty because it makes the situation worse. There is always a, a nagging worry that we can end up inadvertently reinforcing behaviours. Do you find this is the case or is this just a sort of perception bias? Well, I think it's important that we're aware of that. I think the, the notion is that if we are, you know, if we become the kind and considerate place that people prefer to go to, at some point that has to be bottled and the experience of care moved to the right setting of care. So if you've got a good system of knowing who your high utilisers of care are and a good process of reflection on how they are impacting on the health and well-being of the crew or, or the clinicians who are struggling to look after them. I mean, in hospital systems, we use Schwartz rounds for that purpose. 
or some form of emotionally reflective group which says, you know, these people really make us angry, these people make us really frustrated. That gets in the way of us behaving with uh, relentless kindness, compassion. We're losing our ability to be relentlessly reasonable. We have these conversations out loud. And then we would say, so really now we're at a point where we do understand this person. We understand the impact that they're having. Pretty clear what we would do if there's physical injury, illness or immersion or whatever the, the land-based counterparts are. But by and large, what we now want to do is shift the setting of care away from A&E to a crisis house or a crisis hub or to the person's address. And what we've tried to do is to build something that is so valuable to them there that actually it becomes unnecessary for them to attend A&E or to sit on the bridge. And that's the trick. But that takes time. And of course, the cultural differences between A&E medicine and ambulance medicine, where people are dealing with seconds to minutes in order to save lives, and mental health practice, which operates largely over weeks to months, you can see why there would be a collision of cultures, which can from time to time lead to open frustration between police and ambulance crews with mental health services. A&E staff can get very upset with the lack of pace in mental health practice. But it isn't for the lack of a willingness to try. It is simply the nature of the conditions that we're dealing with, which is, I suspect, why mental health services are set up differently from acute services. It's because the pace and the cultures are so different. My life as a liaison psychiatrist has been sitting on the bridge between these two strange worlds, trying on the one hand to make mental health practice value adding to what the A&E staff or the ambulance crew are trying to do, and on the second, making sure that their approach to the patient doesn't exacerbate what we will need to do for that patient once they come over to, to the mental health interventions. We don't want patients who hate A&E departments, hate the police, and hate going to hospital. We want patients whom we can engage with, talk to, work with, and help in recovery. It is a set of fine balances, and it reflects cultural differences right across the piece. I think the more we talk about these things and the more that we have open dialogue about, about the differences, the better understanding and appreciation we have of the natural frustrations that occur. And we can't deny the natural frustrations. We just need to make sure that we are careful about how we manage them. I think probably the piece that certainly in my practice is missing is having that ongoing conversation about folk who you have that frustration with because the nature of emergency response is so transient you know we we rock in we put a plaster on something and then disappear again and probably where we're failing these folk certainly at the roadside is is in not having regular conversations with mental health teams because obviously not working for the ambulance service but i don't think that the links are there to carry on that conversation from the 999 call back to, to ongoing well, care. My experience is that from time to time we set these links up and they work very well for a bit. And then in the nature of things, different professional groups are distracted by their natural priority and can't attend or it isn't value adding for them to attend. So I've come to learn that these, what were intended to be standing groups, rarely are standing groups. They are groups that ebb and flow according to the value that people ascribed to actually meeting and doing the work. So if for the sake of argument, there have been a run of incidents of high utilizers closing motorways and bridges and whatnot. Then all of a sudden there's an imperative for people to come together and conversation flows. Once we're on top of things for a bit, then attendance at meetings tends to drift and, and the world drifts away. And I think that's fine as long as leaders keep an eye on it and that the leadership are all at one and leaders across the system can say, do you know what, I think it's probably about time we found some people with energy who need to get back into the conversation and just help it happen along. And sometimes an assumption that we've solved the culture of an A&E department means we take our eye off the ball. 
and then people have changed, consultants have changed, registrars have changed, people have moved on. All of a sudden, the, the malignant effect of these behaviours has come to infect the staff groups again. Very quickly, it's important that leaders recognise that and move in and say, ah, yeah, we're all getting a bit iffy with each other. Uh, do you realise that none of us came to work this morning to be iffy with each other? We all came to do a good job. So could we just have a think about where have these unpleasant thoughts and feelings about each other come from? Sometimes we don't like each other very much, but by and large, it's because the patients have made us feel that way. And then we just do a piece of work, which is as long as you understand, we'll look after you and we'll look after the patients as fast as we can and share the burden, take the burden sort of thing. I'm very keen on the idea that it's quite interesting to reflect that mental health services, by and large, are not commissioned in the first hour of care. Most mental health services are commissioned to start from the clock getting to 60 minutes. So there's no blue light equivalent of mental health response, which means mental health services have to lend expertise to blue light services, in my view, that means that the first responders and the blue light services can manage that person safely to a place where mental health is then reliable and turns up when they're needed. So being useful, being reliable, turning up when we're needed, for me are the hallmarks of an excellent mental health service. And then working very hard to make sure that aspects of physical injury are not overlooked, that diagnostic overshadowing is managed effectively, and then being in a position to move the setting of care as rapidly as possible, often at the comfort of the patient. But we should be good at that. And it might be worth saying that A&E is not the only place to meet abnormal illness behaviour. Somewhere between 10 and 15% of hospital outpatient clinics are populated by people who are presenting with physical pain, fatigue, or other symptoms that are not easily explained by any of the current models of thinking around pathophysiology and medicine or, or surgical specialties. So these symptoms unexplained by medicine often have a basis in depression, anxiety, or just that person's need to relate to someone or something that cares. And they find that unconditional caring offer often from nurses and sometimes doctors in outpatient clinics. And so it's a good idea for them to keep coming. But you can imagine that in order to keep coming, they need to remain ill. So their motivation is not to get well. Their motivation is to remain interesting to the outpatient clinic. So liaison psychiatry is also very much about working in that space, trying to understand abnormal illness behaviour and trying to make sure that when people are presenting in that way, they aren't subjected to repeat endoscopy, for example, which carries a morbidity with it. There are all sorts of bits of general health that can do better, in my view, with an effective liaison psychiatry service in and alongside. But but I would say that because liaison psychiatry is my specialism and it's been my passion for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> but you make a very compelling argument. And I think even just that reflection of how irritating we find these groups of patients and how frustrating it is when they consume time and service and energy and, and emotional energy as well. That reflective process, I think, is hugely valuable. Yes, it's interesting. As I've, I'm in the twilight of my career now, but the more I go on, the more convinced I am in and around the social determinants of health. And so many of the people that I meet are struggling with the basics of life in terms of accommodation, something decent to eat and meaningful relationships around them, never mind employment or occupation. So many of the situations that we're struggling with have tasks or solutions that lie outside the whole of medicine, even the whole of medicine and psychology and social work struggle. So it's no surprise to me that no matter what we do and with the best of intentions, we will continue as doctors, paramedics 
and health professionals to meet people who have life struggles that are presenting in the way they present to us. But actually, we see the tip of the iceberg and it's everything else that's going on for them underneath the waterline that really is where the solution to not coming back or having a better life or a recovery lies. That's absolutely fantastic. I'm going to get you, if it's all right, to just revise the top tips that you mentioned earlier, because I think that will sort of draw together what we've been talking about. Yes, so I'm, I'm going to leave you with the importance of the four things, being able to recognise vulnerability, uh, ask the right questions, listen in the right way, and knowing what to do. But the most important thing before you start trying to recognise and worry about the questions you might ask and whether you're listening in an appropriate way is do know what you would do in the setting that you work in. Where is the safe place? How would you call for help? What other agencies could you draw in and around you? You have established a responsibility to that person. You do have a duty of care, even if they've left the scene or are threatening you, to try and do something meaningful about pulling extra help in and around or knowing where they've gone off to. So please don't give up. And if it's irritated you, upset you or traumatized you, then I think having a very good collaborative relationship with your local mental health provider and finding somebody like me who takes an interest to have a conversation with afterwards just to work it through is probably the thing that helps you get up the next day with a fresh attitude to what can be some of the most difficult people we'll seek to help. Peter, thanks so much for coming on and joining us and giving us the benefit of your huge expertise and experience in the management of these really quite challenging and sometimes frustrating patients. It's really useful to hear it broken down in, into simple steps and certainly there's a few things there that I'm going to be taking away and changing my own practice with. Thank you very much for coming on and agreeing to chat to us. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.